Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, or you can find it printed in your order of service on page 8. Or if you didn't bring a Bible and would like to follow along in one, we'll be looking at pages 878 to 879 as we consider Luke chapter 19 this morning. We are taking a short break from our series in Colossians to join with the broader church, the church all over the world, in considering Jesus' death and resurrection, which we set aside this time of year to do so. And today is what is traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday, where we, we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, for the last week of his life. And although our passage this morning doesn't mention palm branches specifically, other Gospels do, and hence the name Palm Sunday, when these palm branches were waved and offered before our Lord. Our passages for these next two weeks have been chosen from the church lectionary. And so the the lectionary is this this document that churches all over the world use for their selection of scripture readings and sermon texts. And I think it's amazing that during this time of year, churches everywhere are setting aside time to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus and even considering some of the same passages together. And so I think it's an exciting thing to be able to join in that this morning. Well, why spend this time of year reflecting on the same events year after year after year. Um, I think much like a birthday or an anniversary can help us just pause and remember what has come before and reconsider and adjust our focus for what lies ahead, so also in the life of the church, pausing to think about these significant events in the scriptures give us perspective of where we are now in the history of redemption, and what our Lord is calling us to, especially as we consider his death and resurrection. And today, what we'll be considering in particular is what it means that Jesus has come as the King of Peace, that Jesus has come, he has arrived as the King of Peace. And so we'll be seeing that this morning from Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 to 40. And so let me read that passage, and you can follow along or just listen, and then we'll pray and consider these things together. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Hear God's word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So far, the reading of God's word. Please join with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your divine help this morning. We come with many cares and concerns on our hearts. We come in all different places and situations in life. And we come knowing that you know exactly who we are, where we are, and what we need to hear from your word. We pray that by your spirit you would open our hearts and minds to hear with faith, to see the beauty and wonder of the coming of our Lord Jesus and and what that means for us. We pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would convict us of our sin and pride, that you would strengthen our weak and feeble faith, that you would fill us with joy and delight over the wonder of your gospel. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll consider our text this morning in two main sections. Um, Two points, the arrival of the king of peace and the response to the king of peace. So we'll consider, first of all, the arrival of the king of peace. This narrative really highlights two aspects of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as, as he approaches the city. He comes as the king. And he comes as the king who brings peace. And so we'll just look at those both in point one kind of in turn. First, Jesus comes as the king. We may not see this right away in our text because it's filled with things that I think are relatively strange to us. Uh, But the narrative shows that Jesus comes as the king and then the words of the crowd reinforce it just in case we miss it. But securing this cult was a royal act. We may read this account and think, boy, is Jesus just a bully? He's sending his mob out into a neighboring town to do some carjacking, some um, hot wiring donkeys and and running off with them because he's sick of walking or something like that. It it can sound a little strange to us, right? Uh, But this, if we understand the customs of this day, we realize that this isn't Grand Theft Auto or something like that. It's, It's customary that kings would ride animals upon their approach into a city. And we see that this is something intentional that Jesus is doing. He's been walking the whole way. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's been journeying there all along. But now as he approaches, he tells his disciples of this plan. And whether this is something he has forearranged or just foreknows, we're not entirely sure. None of the Gospels tell us. But it's wondrous nonetheless that he sends these disciples on ahead to secure this ride for him as this intentional act of royalty as he enters into the city. And what's amazing is we see Jesus' authority as even as the disciples are taking away this colt and the owner comes out, and all that needs to be said is the Lord has need of it. And uh, no further questions remain. And so some of that is cultural, and then some of that I think is just related to the royalty of Jesus, even in these issued commands. And so securing the colt was a royal act. Riding a colt into Jerusalem was also a long-awaited act. It was something that had been foretold. The Old Testament prophet 
Zechariah had foreseen the Messiah coming into the city of Jerusalem. And, and what he foresaw and prophesied in Zechariah 9.9 was not the king coming on a war horse, but instead on a colt. In that beautiful prophecy, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so riding a colt into Jerusalem was this sign of royal kingship. Much like David rode on a colt away from the city in Absalom's revolt, now there was this foretold wondrous re-entry of the son of David entering on a colt. And so also the, the laying of their cloaks along the road was a way of showing his royalty. Spreading their garments on the road was like providing a red carpet of sorts. And this was done for kings in the Old Testament. King Jehu, the people did the same thing. And so it's loaded with kingly significance. And so just in case, though, that we missed all these Old Testament subtleties, which Luke is very attentive to as he's writing to a Gentile and non-Jewish audience, um, he makes it explicit through the crowd's words. Now, we find that this is a crowd of disciples who are accompanying Jesus on the way. And it's important to think of it not merely as the twelve, but as followers of Jesus, those who were warm to his teaching and were recognizing him for what he was doing. They are breaking out into praise, and their words make these messianic expectations explicitly clear. And in verse 38 You may have noticed from our scripture reading, and then as I read this, they changed the words of the psalm. Psalm 118 is is on their lips. But if you remember in our scripture reading, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on their lips, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. To them, this was no uh, normal pilgrim just entering Jerusalem they were recognizing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah King. And Jesus intentionally enters the city in this way. So Jesus' arrival makes it clear he is coming to Jerusalem as the Messiah King. But secondly, Jesus comes to bring peace. And, And we see this on the lips of this crowd again in verse 38. They say, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest as they hail Jesus' arrival. Peace is spoken of in Luke's gospel more than any other gospel account. Uh, It's something that he's very attuned to. And I want us just to think of the significance of this in the story thus far. And I know we haven't been in Luke uh, for quite some time, but if, if you were hearing it read in one sitting or if you were studying it together, you would notice these themes as they're coming along. But way back in chapter 1, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, foretells what Jesus' coming will bring. As, as Luke is setting the stage for Jesus' arrival through these songs of the faithful, Zechariah is one who sings this song. And in chapter 1, verse 78, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's how the book starts. 
One is coming who will guide our feet into the way of peace. And then you may remember just a chapter later, when Jesus is born, what happens? The heavenly hosts, the angels, they come and they sing praise, don't they? They offer up celebratory praise over the birth of this child. And do you remember what they say in chapter 2, verse 14? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And so that's really interesting, isn't it? We have these bookends of almost the same words marking Jesus' ministry. Glory to God in the highest, but notice when Jesus is born, heaven declares that Jesus is bringing peace to earth. And now at the end of his ministry, as he's approaching the cross, his followers on earth say that he is bringing peace that reaches even to the heavens. And in this declaration and and understanding of the peace that Jesus is bringing, with these bookends, we start to see the cosmic scope of the peace that our Lord Jesus came to bring, don't we? A peace that reaches to the earth and a peace that extends all the way into heaven itself. You know, when I say the word peace, various things may come to your mind. Right now, I think for a lot of us, it's the cessation of war, the cessation of the war in Ukraine. I think apart from times when we're thinking of international conflict like that, a, a lot of what happens in our minds when we think of peace is the state of inner peace or tranquility. When we mention having peace, we kind of think maybe a lack of stress in life, <laughs> maybe a little bit less chaos. Being a little bit more chill uh, is kind of how we experience peace. But biblically, the idea is far bigger than that. It it entails an inner state for sure, but this peace that Luke is speaking of in this gospel and this peace that Jesus has come to bring is really that Old Testament idea of shalom. Shalom is that Old Testament word for peace, and as we see how that unfolds in the biblical storyline, we see that shalom or peace is something that's cosmic. It is is something that everything on heaven and earth is affected by. It's physical and it's spiritual. Shalom affects our bodies, which are not how they are supposed to be. They're they're out of peace in the sense of their fallenness. Shalom affects our souls, which are now beset by sin and opposed to God. And shalom is also relational. And it's relational between God and people and people and one another. And actually between God and people and all of creation is all encompassed in what this peace is that we're speaking of. It's far bigger than just world peace. It's cosmic peace. It's universal shalom. And as we consider Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, what we realize is that Jesus has come to bring that peace, that shalom. So why is this significant as we consider this today on Palm Sunday? Well, you know, as I've been thinking about it, it's reminded me 
how much our hearts are actually longing for peace. But what I find in my own heart is I'm so used to the lack of it that I don't even realize that's what I'm longing for. (laughs) We live in a world where shalom has been so shattered that it's hard for us to imagine what true peace would really be like, isn't it? But the scriptures help us see that all of the aches and pains that we feel in this life, that we're so used to, actually, they're longings for shalom at their core, aren't they? Every international conflict that rages, every bodily ache, every tension that we see between creation and humanity and what we call natural disasters, every relational rift that you experience in your family or in your friendships or in your neighborhood, each of your conflicted desires that rage within your heart or the sin that you find yourself battling and succumbing to, those aches, those pains, those fears that we feel in any aspect of life has been really brought about because we are not experiencing the true peace that we were designed to experience and live in and be a part of. Shalom has been shattered by sin. And deep down, we are longing for it to be restored, aren't we? And so what I found in thinking about this in my own heart is, oh yeah, that, that's what those aches are. That's what that pain is. And on Palm Sunday, what it's calling us to do is say, that's what's going on in your heart, and, and then it leads to a further question. If that's what we're longing for, if that's what we truly need, then how are we responding to this lack of peace in our lives? Because none of us is experiencing it, are we? None of us is living in this shalom. But what are we doing when we don't have it? What are we turning to for it? We may look to others to be our king of peace. This world is filled with people who are vying for our support And they are promising that they can bring us a better life situation. And it's very tempting for us to think, yes, if I just align myself with this king in this way, then that will bring more shalom into my life. Maybe we're looking to another relationship that can finally bring rest to our restless heart. But maybe you're not looking to kings of peace out there but you look to yourself as the only one you can really trust to bring you some semblance of peace in this life. And you orchestrate and cling to the things that you can control and you shut off your heart to all those things that may disrupt the peace of your little kingdom. Perhaps this morning you've given up hope on any real version of peace in this life. And so instead you just turn to the things of this life for distraction, whatever it may be, your job or entertainment or food or alcohol or sex, whatever may numb the pain of your fractured existence as you live in this world apart from shalom. But Jesus' entry this morning as the king of peace calls you to hear and recognize that heart's cry for what it is 
to realize that that is what you're really seeking and to see that it has come, not in all these other things, but it has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to something further in the second point. We've considered the arrival of the King of Peace, but now we'll consider the response to the King of Peace. The response to the King of Peace. I absolutely love Luke's account here, and I love the choices that he made and what to include and not to include. And uh, one of the things that's fascinating is he's the only writer who records the Pharisees' response to Jesus' arrival, and he's the only one who includes Jesus' comment about the stones. I just find it to be a fascinating scene. There are two groups of people in this with two responses. And then Jesus invokes these stones that are lying along the path and he kind of brings them into the conversation to make a point. It's just masterful. But let's think about these two groups. The first group is the crowd of disciples. And what's going on with them? They are completely caught up in praise. And in verse 37, Luke tells us that the reason they are praising Jesus is for all the mighty works that they had seen. It's all these things that they have seen Jesus do, these miracles he's done, these teachings he has given. And they see those things as works of God, as evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, and they are giving praise to God for what they have seen. And even though they were far from understanding everything, weren't they? They didn't really understand what the cross was all about even yet but they are welcoming Jesus as their Messiah into the city of Jerusalem. And so that's the first group. But then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are these religious leaders of the day. They're the ones who should have seen this for what it was because they knew the scriptures better than anyone else. It was their whole vocation in life. And that's why they understood exactly what all of this symbolism meant. They knew all about the cult of Zechariah. They knew all about the coats that were laid down for Jehu in 1 Kings. They knew about the royal overtones of Psalm 118. And yet to them, Jesus' entry was not a sign of what God was doing. It was not a mark of peace, but it was a warning of chaos for them. It was an act of blasphemy that needed to be silenced. And they appeal to Jesus in verse 39 saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This explicit connection to your Messiahship has just gone too far and it must be stopped. And what does Jesus do? He gives this short response that is so profound. He says in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this response says so much about what is actually happening here on this path on the way to Jerusalem. And really, I think three things are happening with the stones. One is the stones are affirming the disciples' praise. The stones are affirming the disciples' praise. What what Jesus is saying here is, What this this crowd is doing is so appropriate that if it were to stop, 
these stones would pick up that chorus of praise right where they left off. That's how right and fitting this is. And so it affirms what the disciples are doing. But then secondly, the stones are rebuking the Pharisees' response. In the Bible, inanimate objects like stones and trees uh, are sometimes said to testify against humanity. Though creation is under the curse and groaning as we are, it seems that creation as a, as a whole hasn't been blinded by sin and, and in rebellion in the same way that we as humans are. And so creation is sometimes said to be testifying to the way things really are. And so the ground cries out to God over Abel's spilt blood in Genesis 4. And in Habakkuk 2.11, it says that the stones and the beams of a house are testifying to the sins that were done inside that house. And so these inanimate stones, when Jesus says that they would cry out if the people were to stop, it is a rebuke that if the stones can see how right and fitting and appropriate this is, and how rightly Jesus is as the Messiah who brings peace, then, then there's only one appropriate response, and it is to repent and respond in joyful praise. And so the stones affirm the disciples' praise. They rebuke the Pharisees' response. And then I think there's another layer going on here. The stones testify to the inevitability of God's plan. They're testifying to the fact that God's plan for peace is going to happen. Well, well how is that? Again, if we had been hearing Luke's gospel all along as it's, as it's being read to us as the church or as an interested listener, then what we would find is that earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, was calling people to repentance in preparation for Jesus' coming. And he speaks about stones in a similar way that Jesus does here. Do you remember what he said? to the the group of people that had come out to see him. Jewish people, descendants of Abraham had come and John the Baptist was calling them to repent because the Messiah was coming. And he told the crowds not to think that just being a child of Abraham or Jewish by descent meant that their hearts were right and they didn't need to repent before the Messiah. And what does he say? He says, for God is able to raise up children of Abraham from stones if he needed to. Now that's interesting, isn't it? God can raise up children of Abraham from from stones back there in Luke chapter um, 3, I think it was. But here in our passage, God can make rocks cry out in praise if the people were all stopped. You see what's going on here? God's plan for peace between heaven and earth and in all creation, it will happen. He can make stones um, turn into believers if he needs to. He can make stones cry out in faithful praise. One day, all creation is going to resound in liberated praise as the Messiah's peace is put on display for all that it is. But the question then that it raises is, what will your response be to this unveiling of the Messiah's peace? 
Luke goes on to tell us that as Jesus draws near and sees the city, it's this powerfully moving scene. As he's coming on this path down the Mount of Olives and he sees the city that's there, what happens? He breaks out weeping, sobbing as he looks upon these buildings. And it's not because they're the buildings, it's because of what the buildings represent. And those buildings of the city represent so many in Jerusalem who, like the Pharisees, will not see what he is doing for what it really is. And he says in verse 42, Would that you... Even you, even you, Jerusalem. He's, he's crying out in most tender affection. Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to say that judgment will come upon the city because they did not know the time of their visitation. Do you see what's happening God had come to them to bring them the peace that they truly needed. And Jesus is now arriving as the king who lived a perfect life for his people with never a single sin. And he was about to offer himself up as that perfect sin-bearing sacrifice for their sins so that all who trusted in him could be forgiven and could finally be at peace with God again. But they couldn't see it. And because of that, they continued to look to all these other things for their peace, didn't they? And they missed out on the very real peace of salvation that was coming to them in Jesus Christ. Friends, God has visited us today by his word. And he is proclaiming to you a message of peace. And the call to you is the same as that call was on that very first Palm Sunday to see the mighty works of God that Jesus has done in his life and ministry and on the cross and in being raised from the grave and to look to him in trust as the king of peace and to praise him for the salvation that he brings to you by faith in him and faith alone. And it's a call to join now in that chorus of praise that will one day include all of creation as the fullness of the peace that he brings will be seen for what it truly is when he returns one day. Will you turn to him in faith today and experience that true peace of salvation that comes through faith in Christ? Brothers and sisters, who are already looking to Christ in faith, who already have peace with God in our hearts because of what Christ has done. We believe that the King of Peace has come, don't we? And we trust that he will come again. But Palm Sunday is a helpful time for us to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to walk under the rule of the King of Peace even now? What does it mean that Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem while we wait for him to come again one day. Well, I just want to mention three 
ways to apply how we live according to his reign of peace even now, just briefly. There's three ways that we understand the peace that Jesus has brought and we see it in our lives. The first is to lament the lack of peace that we experience now. One of the most amazing things about Christianity is that we have a God who not only understands the brokenness of this world by his omniscience, which is just the theological word for his all-knowingness. God not only knows that this world is broken because he's God and he knows everything, but we have a God who knows the brokenness of this world because he has experienced it as one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus lived as one of us. He came into this same broken world and he experienced the same lack of peace that we feel each and every day. And when Jesus was confronted with that unbelief and that rejection and when he knew the chaos and conflict and turmoil that would cause in Jerusalem, what was his response? He broke down and he wept over what that lack of shalom would do to people here on this earth. And as we see the results of unbelief and rejection of Jesus all around us, he invites us to weep with him. It is a fitting and Christ-like response to see the hurt and brokenness and to lament to take our Godward complaint for all things to one day be made right. And so we lament the lack of peace. Secondly, we rejoice in the coming peace. Knowing that Jesus has arrived as the King of Peace means that one day all of this will be made right. Every ache and pain that we feel, and as Nate showed us last week from Colossians, even the sufferings of the cross that we experience as we take up our cross and follow him will be transformed and be revealed for the glory that God is working in them, in us. And so every time our hearts ache, we can also feel that undercurrent of joy, can't we? Because Jesus will bring shalom. And all of those aches will one day be no more. And so we lament the lack of peace. We rejoice in the coming peace. And then finally, we seek Jesus' present peace. We seek Jesus' present peace. I know in my heart, I can feel that ache and I can say it's right to feel that and to hurt. And I can know that something more is coming, but you can feel so powerless in the present. Well, what does Jesus' peace mean now in the midst of all of this? And that's why I love how Zechariah puts it back in Luke chapter 1. He says that Jesus will be this light that visits us from on high. And then he says this, who guides our feet in the way of peace. And, And Two images come to mind as I hear those beautiful poetic words. One is light that shows us the path of peace, right? But the other is Jesus actively guiding our feet in the way of peace. I I think of him stooping down, as it were, as we find ourselves not knowing what step to take as we look at relationships that are fraught with conflict, we look at a world that is aching all around us, 
we have bodies that are falling apart and we say, what am I to do, Lord? And it's as though he stoops and he says, Here's, let me show your foot where to go. Just take this one step right here and it's in the way of peace. It could be a soft answer that turns away wrath. It could be a kind word that we're able to give in response. It could be the words that we hold in that would just pour gasoline on a fire. It could be seeking of forgiveness. It could be confessing our sin. Whatever that one step is, Jesus is placing our foot saying, if you put it here, it's on the way of peace. And what that does is it shows that the peace of heaven has broken into this world now through Jesus. And that he, by his spirit, is teaching us to walk. And it won't be perfect. It won't be shalom. Our relationships aren't all going to be fixed. Our bodies aren't somehow just going to mend. But we can walk on the path of peace where Jesus is seen holding out peace and breaking in with his peace in a world that's filled with chaos and pain. And so as we seek Jesus' present peace, what a comfort it is to know that probably what he wants from us more than anything as we consider Palm Sunday is as we face situation after situation, we come in humble dependence and say, can you show me where to put my feet? How to use my hands? What to say and not say? Can you bring peace to this raging heart and take it back to the comfort that you have brought and secured forever through your life, death, and resurrection. And as he does this, heaven's peace is held out to a lost and dying world. And the amazing thing is it's put on display through us, whose lives are still not experiencing the fullness of shalom, but know what it is to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this Palm Sunday, may God help us all to rejoice in Jesus as the King of Peace, for the peace that he has brought through his life, death, and resurrection, for the peace that he will bring when he comes again one day, and the peace that he helps us to walk in even now. Let's pray and ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, it it hurts, actually, to pause and think about shalom. It's painful to realize how far we are from the way things are supposed to be. And we experience this outside of us, and we experience it even now inside us. But we thank you that you know that exactly, and that through the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that is needed for cosmic peace in heaven and on earth and under the earth has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to turn again to him for that peace, that you would strengthen our faith as we walk in the midst of chaos and conflict and brokenness, and that you would give us joy even now over how you are working peace even in all of these things and one day the fullness of it that we will see because of the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.